0: Hey, I'm Kamara Rose, and this is Everyday Changemakers, conversations with social change practitioners about the journey of personal transformation and social transformation.
1: Part of how we move from isolation to solidarity is recognizing where there is potential for us to see what agency we have in these situations to act on it, to step up and lead, to come together with others, to say, hey, we can change this.
0: This week, I'm talking to Art Reyes III. Art is the founding executive director of We The People, an organization working to build multiracial, working class alliances to contend for power across Michigan. Art grew up in Flint, Michigan, where his family had settled in the 1940s and 50s, looking for a beacon of hope in America, a place where a family could have a fighting chance at the middle class.
1: I was born in the 80s. Uh, I was born in June, so my mom had just finished her junior year of high school, and my dad had just graduated.
0: Art was born in the midst of significant General Motors layoffs and plant closures. And Flint, which had been a stable place with union jobs, started to become unstable.
1: My family decided to move to a trailer park in the suburbs when I was a kid, and so that I could have access to a public school system that was pretty high functioning. So I I went to a grand blank school system.
0: In Art's family, he had grown up with the narrative that it didn't matter if you came from the fields, like his family did. In Flint, you could still make it. But now that narrative was challenged because here he was living in a trailer in a wealthy white suburb to get access to an education that he couldn't get in Flint.
1: I think it's actually where I learned to feel shame. I remember when my dad would pick me up from school, I'd always have my shoes untied because he drove a beat-up Pontiac Sunbird and my friends at school's parents had like Cadillacs and nice cars and so my shoes were always untied so that I could get in the car and immediately bend down and tie my shoes so that nobody would see me in my dad's beat-up car. I remember having incredible anxiety because I fit in with the cool kids and the cool kids had money and I did not. If people know that I live or lived in this trailer park, or my dad drives this beat up car, or that's it for me, right? People aren't gonna like me. For me, there is a lot of this tension that existed that also developed into a chip on my shoulder growing up that, that was a little bit of righteous indignation, right? Like, wait a minute, this isn't how it's supposed to be. This isn't what my family said our society was like, our community was like, our state was like.
0: Art's family had come to Flint for the factory jobs. They were proud United Auto Workers.
1: Everybody worked in the auto factories. My dad is one of the few people who still does. He's an electrician at the truck and bus plant in Flint. You know, I went everywhere with my dad when I was a kid, everywhere. The Sunday, Sunday union meetings, right? I was up early, getting ready, and like at the union hall with my dad, always. You know, I remember... Uh, in the sixth grade when my dad was on strike and, you know, being out on the picket line with him every day over the summer.
0: That summer, Art's dad sat down at the kitchen table with Art, his kid brother, and two sisters to tell them that they weren't going to be able to go back to school shopping that year.
1: Which felt like a real blow, particularly given, like, the shame I talked about around, like, noticing class, right? Pretty regularly. But him saying, look, we're not going to be able to do that because we're getting $100 a week from the strike fund. And that's not a whole lot to support, you know, a family of four kids on. But there are times where you got to fight and you got to sacrifice for what you believed in.
0: Art thought about the Flint sit-down strike in the 1930s, which he'd heard lots of stories about from hanging out at the Union Hall with General Motors retirees
1: one of the most important movement moments our country has ever seen, right, is when a ragtag group of workers occupied the means of production, shut down what was the world's largest manufacturing corporation at the time, General Motors, in order to demand dignity and rights in the workplace. And it was because of that that industrial jobs became a working middle-class job. That year after the sit-down strike, you saw an incredible explosion in unionization rates across the country. It's the most rapid unionization growth in the country's history, 55% in that one year. The UAW went from about 30,000 workers to about half a million. The steel workers exploded, the textile workers exploded. This, This moment in time where workers demanded dignity through a lot of struggle, but they won. And the fruits of that were, you know, my family coming up from from Texas and having access to union wages.
0: And Art thought about being on the picket line every morning with his dad and feeling, feeling what, what solidarity,
1: solidarity actually felt like and looked like and knowing that to a big corporation like individually we could be weak but collectively we could be incredibly strong and you know being out there until the strike ended right until they prevailed we don't need a silver bullet we don't need a magic politician that comes in and saves us where the leaders were waiting for
0: hey everyone I'm taking a quick break here to let you know about our guest for the next episode of Everyday Changemakers, Mackie Alston, a senior vice president of prophetic and creative leadership at Auburn Seminary.
1: I was sure I was going to die of AIDS. It was just everywhere. We were all getting tested and not getting tested, knowing the verdict already. It was a theological verdict. It was a political verdict, social verdict, familial verdict, and and an internalized verdict of death. This is the wage of sin.
0: Listen to the next episode to hear how Mackie's experience, coming of age, queer, in the midst of the AIDS crisis, shapes his theology of resistance. A theology celebrating life, beauty, and joy that he weaves through his work today equipping faith leaders to stand for justice. Okay, back to Art's story. Even with all his family history with the Union, Art didn't think he'd become an organizer. He thought he'd get into politics. His first job out of high school was field coordinator for a congressional campaign. But when he was a senior in college, he went to an organizing meeting for what was then called Flint area congregations together
1: and I remember sitting uh, in the basement at Quinn Chapel Ame on the south side for a meeting where that was just listening to people about what are the challenges we're facing in our community what's going on and then being pushed by organizers you know what what are we going to do about it <laughs> you know what resources do we have I really caught the organizing bug because for me it was like wait, th- this is the stuff that my family has been talking about. This is the stuff like, that I learned from the retirees about the sit-down strike. It-, it, was, it was us figuring out how we use the resources we have to make demands to actually build enough power to change things that so much of it for us is about, is about our own agency.
0: After getting a master's in public policy from Harvard, Art went on to become the training director for the Center for Popular Democracy. And he was living in Boston in 2016 when he got a call from a friend he'd grown up with.
1: She called me up and said, I just left the house of an immigrant family on the east side of Flint. They did not know about the water crisis until President Obama had declared a state of emergency. The state had not translated anything into Spanish. They tried to go get water from an official distribution center that the state had set up, but they didn't have ID, so they got turned away. There had been rumors that there had been an ice raid on a grocery store in their neighborhood, so they were afraid to go buy water. They had an 11-month-old baby, and the mother had been drinking the water and breastfeeding all 11 months, and so their baby was sick, and had a all over its body, and they didn't know what to do. And that that was a very visceral pull for me, right? That was the same neighborhood that my family moved to in the 40s and 50s as beacon of hope for working people, and here's a family not not dissimilar from my own that it wasn't like well we need a good union jobs or we need a functional education it was like we need clean water for our 11-month-old baby and like for me it was like I gotta go home and you know I called my you know my boss at the time at, at, at CPD and I was like look this can be okay or not but like I, I gotta be home and I went right to Logan Airport and, and got on a flight that night and went home and Wani and I sat down like thinking some stuff and had a friend that i had done some work with before who runs a great organization in in detroit her name's angie reyes and i sent it to her she had some of her staff stay up all night translating the state's materials and by sunday morning we had 80 people from across the state at saint mary's church ready to sweep the east side of the city to like give bilingual information to let people know that where there were sanctuary spaces where they could get water and to give people accurate information about what was happening with the crisis and for, for me, it was like this was home, this is like so much of my identity, why I'm an organizer, all of these things.
0: Art was pulled back to his home, back to his roots. For a series of months, he practically lived at a church called St. Michael's downtown, working to build a leadership base of a local community who could fight back, not just against the water crisis, but to make long-term change that work ended up growing into an organization called Flint Rising. And the experience spurred Art on to officially move back to Michigan and found We the People.
1: I mean, at the core, right, what we're focused on is is the question of, is it possible to build multiracial working class alliances that can build a vision and agenda of what is the type of state that we deserve and fight to build the power to, to make claims on what that looks like over time. But but that means that it can't start with like a big grant that comes in with like these are the issues that we're working on or an issue cut or a poll that says like, well, these are the things people, it's got to start with diving in with people in their communities and and getting a sense of like what's going on for people, right? Enabling the leadership of folks who are in their communities who, are, uh, at, who actually are, are the ones who are on the ground struggling with the challenges that our communities are struggling on and built from there. And for me, that means we see our people as agents and as leaders, and we help people build teams and structure to actually move and build power on local issues. We can't just see them as bodies and numbers that we move around during election or around a particular issue or around a protest or march.
0: Hey everyone, I'm taking a quick pause here to offer you a resource in case, like Art, you feel called to work directly with your own community to solve the problems you're facing together. Art is a former student and teaching fellow of Marshall Gans, a community organizer and scholar who was on the show a couple episodes back. And I recommend you listen to that one if you haven't already. So the resource I have for you is adapted from Marshall Ganz's work on leadership, community organizing, and taking action. It's called Coming Home, and you can find it at kamararose.com resources. The link is, as always, in the show notes. Use the guide to brainstorm about your people the problems they're facing, and the resources you have to make change. So go to kamararose.com resources to download the Coming Home Guide and let me know what action you take in your community. Okay, back to art story. Arts organization, We the People, launched in two very different places. The Upper Peninsula, or the UP, which is rural and predominantly white and is also the heart of the native community in Michigan. They started there and in the city of Detroit, which is almost entirely people of color and is the United States' single most segregated metropolitan area.
1: So the Keweenaw Peninsula, that's as far northwest as you can go, In the state of Michigan, you know, I'm in Detroit right now. For me to drive up there, it'd take me about 12 hours. They have the second highest energy cost in the country. The only place with higher energy costs than them is Hawaii. This is two poor rural counties where you have a bunch of folks, particularly senior citizens on a fixed income, that are deciding, am I going to be able to put food on the table, pay for my meds, or do I got to worry about paying this heat bill? Being able to afford to pay that or having that cut off in the coldest part of the state that's happening at the same time that in the city of Detroit, tens of thousands of families have been having to make the same type of decision about am I going to be able to put food on the table, am I going to be able to take care of some other expenses, or am I going to have running water next month because tens of thousands of families have had their water cut off because they can't afford to pay their water bills. So you have this in a starkly segregated state, one in a, an urban, densely populated you know, communities of color. Uh, and one in a white rural place that are facing really similar challenges up against really similar forces that like there is a ton of potential for us to be building a whole lot of solidarity and common vision across so many of our communities that are struggling. And for me, the, the, the reason why it was such a hopeful year, despite it being such a challenging one in like the national context is because like it's possible uh, you know we're we're going to be bringing people together for a statewide convention in July to forge a a unified, proactive people's agenda that says, look, a conventional and cynical politics might tell us that there is little that we have in common, but actually we think that there's a whole lot of linked fate that we have.
0: It's fascinating, this contrast between what you're describing as dire straits, right? It's like here we are in the United States, and people are struggling over access to water and power, which is not supposed to be happening, supposedly, in a (laughs) quote-unquote developed nation. But you're describing that in the midst of that, what's growing for you is hope. Do you feel like that hope is growing not just in you, but in the people you're working with? And can you just talk about how that hope grows, how that resilience is like, first of all, like thoughts on like why it can grow out of despair, but Mm -hmm. also how you can use it together.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's a really good question. Look, I think, I think for me, there's something about in particular when we're facing challenge, like our inclination is to experience that challenge in isolation, you know, to feel like they're aren't other people going through this similar thing and for us to feel shame around that right just as a quick example i remember the first day we were out on the doors in flint and there was um, a mom a young mother who had a two-year-old and a four-year-old and we're talking about everything she broke down crying and for her she was like i make my kids drink water like they told us it was safe and i make my kids drink water because like i want them to be healthy i don't want them to drink pop and like I did this, I made them drink water and and they're gonna be sick. Even though like it was a national story, the state had poisoned this entire community, the experience of that was, was to experience that in isolation. And we see that so often with challenges that we're facing. Part of, I think, how we move from isolation to solidarity is understanding what these experiences are for us and then recognizing where there is potential for us to see what agency we have in these situations to act on it, to step up and lead, to come together with others, to say, hey, we can change this.
0: Yeah. Well, in closing then, getting a taste of that hope that you've talked about, do you want to sketch out or invoke even the vision that you're holding? And I know it's just not your vision alone, but the vision you've been working with the people of Michigan, we the people. what is that vision that is emerging or what is the vision that you want to evoke? What is it that you want to build?
1: hmm I mean, Michigan is a place that has a whole lot of fighters, right? Like this is a proud, a really proud place that for me is incredibly symbolically important for what we look like as a society, right? What we look like as a country. And I guess we've seen folks consolidate political and economic power, on the premise of pitting a number of our communities against one another right and and talking to poor and struggling communities should be looking at each other with suspicion to explain where the roots of their of their challenges and problems go and i actually think that like our people are so much smarter than that and i think that with some real work there's the potential for us to transform what power looks like in a place like Michigan. Now, that's a long haul prospect, right? That requires that we're really thoughtful about how we're building the relationships and engaging people over time. But but for me, what that looks like is that's people like I described who have been poisoned in Flint or have had their water cut off in the city of Detroit or who are struggling to keep their heat running in the Keweenaw Peninsula or folks getting pushed out of their houses in Grand Rapids because investment firms Bought up all the foreclosed houses and then jacked up rent, or pushing black and brown folks out of their out of their community. That's us standing together and saying, "Enough! We're going to reject that, but we're also going to build a proactive vision of what's the what's the type of state that we actually deserve." And we're going to come at this uh, in ways that are building enough power that folks that are standing in our way better know that we're coming because there's so so much better that our communities deserve than what we're getting right now and. I think we have the ability to build real multiracial alliances that can build that proactive vision of what's the type of state that we deserve and build the power to actually make claims on that, right, to transform what it looks like in a place like Michigan. So we we got a road ahead of us, but there's some really, really incredible people and communities here that are stepping up and fighting every day.
0: Well, thank you thank you for everything you shared thanks for sharing your own story and your passion and all the ways that you're bringing that to life and to work with we the people
1: yeah i really really appreciate and appreciate the work that you're doing and and diving into
0: into those stories thanks for listening to everyday change makers if you liked this episode please take a moment to rate and review it in itunes and i will be so grateful also, forward this episode to friends or colleagues who you think would enjoy it. They'll be happy that you did. As a reminder, you can find the Coming Home Guide at kumararose.com resources. Finally, Everyday Changemakers is a production of Yours Truly in collaboration with markmedia.org.